welcome to episode 43 of More Than Books podcast. Today we're going to be talking about fantasy and we're going to be talking about tropes. So let's get down and dirty and discuss some of those nitty gritty details of some of those lesser known fantasy novels that we love today. And we are going to be talking about two fantasy series, both that have a long standing within the genre, but haven't quite reach the levels of acclaim as Lord of the Rings or Chronicles of Narnia. And those two series are Wizards of Earthsea and the Elenium Trilogy. So to start, we're going to talk about names. Specifically, to begin with, the fact that the two main characters from the books that we're talking about practically have the, the same, same name. name. So, in the Elenium Trilogy, the main character's name is Sparhawk. And in the Earthsea Trilogy, a prominent character, um, his, I guess, nickname is Sparrowhawk. Yes, and that is such a common name that you will see in fantasy. Is something that just sounds very exotic. Indigenous. Yes, and that is definitely a problem with some of these fantasy books that came out between 1980 and uh, about 2005, 2008, is that they do tend to steal names and trends from other cultures, primarily indigenous cultures, so that they sound strong and powerful. And also, they are building fantasy worlds. Um, they want the unusual, the alien. And they want it to sound foreign. And a good way to do that is to use words and cultures that aren't the norm for your audience. In the Elenium, they take a lot of them from Norse and uh, Germanic kind of backgrounds. You've got Halton, Curric, and Talon, for examples. And then there's also Sophrenia, which is a very kind of Norse Gaelic name. In Wizards of Earthsea, Ursula Le Guin combines the traditional sounding names that we see in most fantasy works that are more medieval and based, and just puts them in a different setting. So you have names like Ged, Tenor, Orion. They're very fantasy-esque, very typical of the genre. And again, that goes back to just kind of the trying to sound like the time they're portraying. So a lot of the times they are more medieval sounding names or simplified names because that is something that would be common during that time. And another really powerful trope that's seen in a lot of fantasy works is the power of names. Yes, and that is something you do see in Earthsea. The basis of the magic magic system actually is surrounding names. Names, especially true names, hold immense power. Every living being thing in Earthsea has a true name. And if you happened to discover someone's true name, you would hold power over them. 
So most people in Earthsea have two names. They usually keep their true name to themselves or in their close circle of friends and acquaintances. And then they have sort of a nickname or given name that most people call them by. Yeah, and they even in Earthsea expand upon it because you have a whole coming-of-age ceremony where you're given your true name. Mm -hmm. And that's very powerful. Because names simply aren't just an identifier. They are a manifestation of the soul. Yeah, and it's kind of interesting because you have the true names and the nicknames, and it's the true name that has power, but it's the opposite in the Elenium trilogy because the nicknames tend to have more power or tell more about a character than the actual names themselves. So one of them is uh, Sparhawk is the queen's champion, and that rings so true. He will do anything for his queen. Then there's Anias, the bastard of Kimora, and he's not just a bastard because of being born out of wedlock. He's just an overall bastard. And it's really just telling of his character because you just start to expect that because he is the bastard of Kimura, that he's going to be the big bad. He's going to do evil things. And he's not going to think of the people that he hurts. And then you've got, again, the main character, Sparhawk, as the queen's champion. You know that if push comes to shove, if the queen is involved, he's going to protect the queen at all costs. Another trope that's uh, common in a lot of fantasy works is that of powerful objects and the worship that tends to surround them or deification of objects for people. In Earthsea, there are quite a few objects of import, but the one that really gets talked about the most is something called the Ring of Aerith Akbe, which is an odd name for it because it isn't even a ring. It looks, when it's described in the book, it's more like a bracelet than anything else. But the significance of this ring is that it supposedly brings peace in Earthsea once all of the different islands in the archipelago are united as one. And when we talk about cults, there's not particularly a cult that surrounds the ring itself, but rather around the place where it is kept, or rather where it was kept before Ged decides to go all Indiana Jones and steal, <laughs> steal it. <laughs> So the Ring of Aerith Akbe for the longest time was housed in the tombs of Atuan. The Atuan is an island that is in the Kargish lands, and Atuan actually houses most of the temples and religious artifacts for the Kargish people and the Kargish Empire. In the second book, which is called The Tombs of Atuan, we are introduced to a young priestess named Tenor, who is, the, is supposed to be a reincarnation of a long line of priestesses who serve a dark series of dark gods called the Nameless Ones. Beneath the tombs of Atwan are a series of labyrinths, each leading to rooms that hold old treasures and magical objects. And of course, in one of those rooms is the Ring of Aerith Akbe. In the Elenium, the Sapphire Rose uh, Behelium is 
originally created by a troll. Um, he was considered even ugly by his fellow trolls. He was an outcast. And so he was mining and he finds this sapphire, this powerful sapphire that calls to him. And so he digs it out of the earth. And so he asks the troll gods what he should do with it for them to bestow upon this rose, this great power. He goes about and he he knows before he even sees the full sapphire that it is meant to be a rose. Through his work, he carves this delicate looking rose out of this sapphire. And he's given two rings that use some of the remnants of the sapphire to control it because he couldn't he couldn't touch it. It was so powerful. So you have to have the rings to do so. And this doesn't sit right with the styric gods who are worried about the power of this object. And so they rally the humans and they get them to attack and they give this goddess the ability to go in and steal it. And so this rose at the time of the book has been lost for centuries. But you get this feeling that you know where it is from the beginning of the book. But you have to go through that journey with the characters for them to figure it out. So it's interesting how this powerful object is just so impactful for everything it's what's needed to save the queen because she's poisoned at the beginning of the book you do have very powerful objects um and in this uh trilogy the the sapphire rose is the most powerful it can literally end the world if in the wrong hands the one aspect that these two books do share is that they have a bit of a delayed love story in most fantasy, we generally get the love at first sight, or the love story that's sort of pushed off to the side. Mm -hmm. And you usually get the progression of, they meet in the beginning, they slowly hate each other, then they slowly love each other in the middle, and then they're together by the end. In both of these uh, series, the love story kind of comes either, you know, in the middle of the book, or after kind of everything happens it's kind of funny how we both have delayed love stories but they're both so different yours is creepy mine is very creepy very i creepy. i will admit um when i first read the book i didn't think anything of it but when i reread it to get ready for this podcast it kind of it struck me that the protagonist sparhawk who's like 50 or so marries the queen who's 18 and she has apparently been in love with him since the age of eight when as the queen's champion he was instructed to teach her how to um basically hold herself in society so the one thing i will say um in sparhawk's favor is the fact that he does fight it he definitely, like, he tries to, um, when he first sees her, um, when she's encased in crystal to delay the poison, and he first goes in to see her after 10 years of exile, he does, you know, he's kind of like, okay, she she grew up. She, she's definitely, like, she's very pretty. But he also very quickly is like, okay, she's 18. Let's not. But somehow, through just a lot of 
persistence on Elena's part when she does wake up and the insistence of even the church um, because the main almost pope but not the pope blesses it and so it's it's kind of a whole thing and then that same thing carries over to their daughter in the sequel to this trilogy where she is about five or six years old and there and she's starting to show interest in this teenage boy and the thing is is that this five and six year old girl is not five or six she is actually the reincarnation of a millions of year old goddess so it's still scuzzy i will admit but yeah it's i don't know it is what it is but it is a delayed love story because of the fact that she's like i've loved you all my life and then they end up together so yeah let's let's move on to a more normal one <laughs> yeah earthsy let's talk about earthsy <laughs> <laughs> so i'm going to make a bit of a controversial um opinion about the love story in Earthsea. I think that Ged has two love interests Okay. over the course of the series. Pray tell. I will tell. Of course, there is his obviously canonical love interest named Tenor. They first meet during the events of the second book, The Tombs of Atuin, where Ged, at this point in the story, is 30 years old, and Tenor, who's 15, um sort of cross paths when he, again, is there to steal the ring of Aerith Akbe. And there are feelings. They're very subtle. But once the events of the book come to a close, they quickly part ways. Uh, Ged, being a wizard, is a part of a monastic order that doesn't allow him to marry or have children. And Tenor, at this point of her life who's been in service to the nameless ones who's never really had the freedom to choose a life of her own chooses freedom over the years it, it'll be many years before they meet again they don't meet until they're both well into middle life in that time tenor actually was married and then widowed had two children who at the point of the fourth book Keanu, are adults and either are pursuing their own employment or have families of their own and once they reconcile um get is you know 50 60 and tenor is probably like mid 40s at this point you know get is kind of done with magic he ended up uh sacrificing his powers to save all of Earthsea and is essentially in a magical equivalent of retirement <laughs> and so it's at this point in the story where they get together and i really enjoyed that aspect a lot it's not often where you see a love story get sidelined or delayed in, in fantasy especially between a male and female protagonist now onto the controversial aspect of my argument I'm going to say that Earthsea has LGBTQ plus representation. During the third book, The Farthest Shore, 
Uh, the main character of that book is Prince Aaron, who is right at the cusp of leaving adolescence. So that would place him around 17, 18 years of age. Still kind of dicey, but we're going to go with it. At this point in the story, you know, Ged's around 40 years old. Like I said, kind of dicey. But Prince Aaron, the main protagonist of The Furthest Shore, may be of queer variety. Uh, his relationship with Ged is very complex and is strangely intimate as the two share very tender moments throughout the novel. And I sort of have a compilation of notable quotes that support my point. On page nine, there was this quote. He felt the archmage's touch as a thrill of glory, for Aaron had fallen in love. Stated quite plainly there, and another one. He looked down at Aaron. The boy's sleeping face was lit red gold by the long sunset. The rough hair was wind-stirred. The soft, easy, princely look of the boy who had sat by the fountain of the great house a few months since was gone. This was a thinner face, harder and much stronger, but it was no less beautiful. I think you have a valid point there. And there's more. Far, far more. So, that's interesting. <laughs> yeah, so it sounds like we both have a little bit of controversy going on. So, another thing that was in common with our chosen novels and series was the exiled and outcast protagonist. In Earthsea, this really only factors into the first book. Ged goes into a period of self-isolation as he is the primary instigator of the trouble that comes a chasing. I would even go as far as to say that he is both the protagonist and antagonist of the first book, as he is the one who releases the shadow and in the end is the one that has to defeat him. But as I said, he goes into a period of self-isolation, self-exile, as not to get uh, those that he cares about hurt. In the Elenium, before the book even, the events of the book even take place, uh, Sparhawk is exiled for 10 years. He's actually supposed to be exiled for longer. But when Queen Elena is put in danger, he uses a letter that she wrote as a child when he first got exiled as a means of forcing him his way back into the kingdom without getting into trouble. But he, when he's in exile, he's not just in exile. The Padian Order, the Knights Order that he belongs to, actually uses it as a means of getting a, someone undercover in another land. And so he still reports back to the Order of Knights and he lives in this coastal region for a while that actually ends up becoming an integral part of the plot. And so his life there ends up becoming almost essential to their quest when they start searching for the Rose. But he is exiled for events that he didn't do, and it just really sets the tone of him being against the world. And another thing that these two um, series have in common is that of aged characters. The main character of the Elenium, he's approximately 50 years old during the story, and 
it does impact the way that the story is written. A lot of the characters are older. The dialogue is more mature. There's definitely a lot more references to brothels and whores one would normally see in fantasy. In Earthsea, it's a little different. You do see a lot of the characters when they are of a typical age, meaning being in their adolescence or late adolescence. But it, it is different as the series spans over several years. Uh, we follow a, sim- a same set of characters throughout the journey of their lives. Ged, o- or Sparrowhawk as he's famously known, is the titular character of the series, either appearing as a protagonist or the secondary protagonist, but we get to see him age from a young lad at the beginning of A Wizard of Earthsea to an elderly man again going into retirement towards the end of Teanu. So let's go into some differences. So some tropes that are common in fantasy, but maybe we had kind of opposite versions of those tropes. So the first one is prideful versus humble. The Elenium trilogy actually subverts that. Yeah, it does. Sparhawk can be prideful, but he doesn't use it unless it's something that will help him get what needs to be gotten. So he's kind of boastful and brash when he first comes in and he's waving this letter from the queen in the politicians' faces. But other than that, I mean, he's leading an army at times, and yet he'll still share a tent with the, the lower knights, and he'll gladly give up his comfort for another. He even goes so far in the beginning of this trilogy to cash in a great debt just because he and his friend Callan were ambushed and Callan was hurt and he didn't think they would be able to safely go the few blocks to their safe house. So he bartered with the leader of the thieves with this favor to give his friend a safe place to rest. And in A Wizard of Earthsea, in the first novel. It is a classic tale of pride cometh before the fall. Ged's biggest character flaw is that of his pride. It is because of this fallacy that causes the events of the novel, or is the instigator of the events in the novel, as well as the origin of the shadow coming into the world, which is the antagonistic force in the book. Many would argue that the shadow represents the darker parts of Ged, the parts that he for so long attempts to run from and attempts to deny. And this is where a fun bit of Jungian psychology comes into play, because at the end of the book, in order to defeat the shadow, he has to essentially stop running from it and actually run towards it, essentially facing his own shadow in order to integrate and to become a whole and complete being. And the shadow comes into being solely because Ged wants to be the best. And so it's that pride that causes it to occur. And in the end, his pride ends up hurting himself more Mm -hmm. than it hurts anybody else. In fact, one of his biggest physical deformments, which is a scar that covers a good portion of one of his cheeks, actually comes from a battle that he has with the shadow. And that is 
a permanent attribute that sticks with him throughout the rest of the series. And continuing with uh, appearance there, there's the issue of race and fantasy. And Earthsea actually does some pretty cool stuff with that. Yeah, R-E-P-R-E-S-E-N-T-A-T-I-O-N. Representation. But most of the prominent figures in Earthsea are people of color. It's great. Ged is a beautiful, short, hooked-nosed, russet-skinned man. There are titular characters that are that are pale-faced or have lighter skin. Uh, these are mainly the Kargish people. But most of the time, the Kargish are actually portrayed in a really negative light. In fact, I would go as far to argue that they are portrayed in the way that most people of color in other fantasy series are treated. You know, they're seen as being savage and ruthless and bestial and inhuman. And that's how mine is. Uh, the, my, the majority of the characters are basically described as being white or Caucasian. Sometimes their skin is tanned because they live on a coastal region. And the people who are described as being darker skinned or severely pale, like translucent skin or just different, tend to be portrayed as extreme cultists or enemies or just crazy. And it's definitely, it's it's a book of the time of when it was written. I think why Earthsea sort of subverts that stereotype in a lot of classic fantasy is that it is is because it's written by a woman. Uh, it's very aware of its genre, and even though the the Kargish people, you know, they're the essentially white people in Earthsea, you know, even though they are described as you know being essentially savages, we do have Kargish characters. They are intermittent, uh, few and far between, but we do get this to see the world through their perspective, and we get to understand their culture, and we do see that you know, they aren't fully that way, that it's mainly just a prejudice that we see, because the vast majority of Earthsea are people who do have darker skin, and the Kargish are different, and different is scary. And that definitely is an aspect of the race in mind. Even the little mother of the Padian Knights, who's this witch, essentially, it's described that people will just outright attack her people because they're scared of them. And a topic that we can add an addendum to race is also discussions of gender in both series. Mm-hmm. In the Elenium, you do have strong women like the women are are portrayed as strong you've got them owning and running businesses you've got the queen who's very strong and will take will not take no for an answer you've got the little mother sophrenia who's this hundred year old witch that you don't mess with her she's powerful and she knows it but she's also the most delicate thing and they're all described as delicate or they're described by their attributes, so like the mistress that he has when he's in exile, she 
is very strong-willed she's very independent but she's also like her main attribute is her bosom you have the strong female character but then they also are just very almost subversive when it comes to gender relations they're wrapped in a very traditional package yeah this is actually where the Elenium is actually a little bit more progressive than Earthsea. Earthsea, at least in the main three books, uh, the original trilogy, is very male-dominated. Um, most of the powerful powerful positions of, you know, mages, wizards, king, queens, even spots as a novice in, you know, their school of magic, are only positions are open for men. In fact, magic is plentiful in Earthsea, and anyone who trains in it, you know, can wield and use it. But there is this core misbelief that women's magic is inherently weaker than man's. And in fact, there is a pop common saying in Earthsea that kind of goes along the lines of as weak as a woman's magic. And um, Ursula actually, the author, actually wrote the fourth book, Teanu, as a rebuttal to the first three books because she realized where she went wrong in that portrayal. And Teanu is very much a feminist novel we see from the female perspective. And we actually, in the following books, one of which is an anthology, we actually learn a lot more about the secret history of magic in Earthsea. And that school of magic that I was talking about that is predominantly, you know, which is you know, dominated by men, was created by women, and then male wizards pushed them out. I will say that when it comes to the gender roles in a lot of David Edding's work, um, he is the author of The Elenium, he had his wife co-writing a lot of it with him, and that is probably the main reason that even though the women are kind of subversive, they're so independent and strong-willed. So dynamic. Yes. Well, that's all for today, folks. I hope you have enjoyed our discussion on classic fantasy and fantasy tropes. Uh, these are your hosts, Sierra Whitfield and... Emily Sutherland, and we are signing off.